So up until this point in the sermon series, David has been the ideal king. He has just been wonderful. But this is the point where the story turns. This is the point where the hero fails us. This is the point where he blows it, where he shipwrecks his life. In this story, we see David lie, commit adultery. We see David murder. And if all that wasn't enough, he takes his victim's wife and steals her and makes her his own wife. And just like every story where the hero fails, it makes us uncomfortable. We'd rather not read it. We don't really want to know. And if we do read it, our temptation is to go over, pick up a rock, throw it at him, and walk away. And say, thank God I'm not like that guy. Thank God I'm not a murderer. Thank God I'm not an adulterer. But if that's all we do with this story, we're missing an opportunity. Because this story isn't just a cautionary tale. It's actually a mirror. The story is a mirror for us. This story invites us to consider this painful truth that all of us are capable of the dark and destructive things that we see David doing this week. Scholar Walt Brueggemann said this, David and Bathsheba is more than we want to know about David, right? You're like, ugh. But it's also more than we can bear to know about ourselves, is what he says. Another Christian author I read recently said this, all human beings are three bad days away from being a tabloid headline. And most of us are on day two already. (laughs) So what I want to do today is not to cast stones, but to look in the mirror of this story, to see what we are capable of as humans. And then I want to look at Jesus. He's the leader who never fails us. And he's the one that loves us enough to save us from ourselves. So today, to help structure this sermon, I'm going to use medical language. And I've been on a steep learning curve. So my wife is a nurse, as some of you know. And so every day when she comes home from work, I'm like, hey, love, how's, how's work? And then she starts speaking a different language. She starts using all of these words, and I'm trying to like, what are you talking about? So if you have like a, a spouse that's a lawyer or a banker, you know what I'm talking about. And so I'm going to use some medical words, but I'm going to use some real kind of easy softball medical words. So, so the, the, this, the sermon is going to be this. First off, the anatomy of sin. Secondly, the root cause of sin. And then lastly, the cure for sin. So the anatomy the root cause, and the cure. So first off, I want to look at the anatomy of sin that we see here in this passage. Because this, the writer of 2 Samuel does a really great job of kind of peeling back the skin and letting us see what's going on, the inner workings of sin kind of unraveling. And here's the thing, even if today you're not walking in with some heavy sin weighing on your heart, there will be a day that it does. If you're human, there will be a day that a heavy sin weighs in your heart that you need to know about the anatomy. And there will be a day that you're sitting face to face with somebody that's coming to you lost, confused, hurting because they're caught in a sin they can't get out of. And so it's really important for us to know the anatomy of sin. It helps us on our journey and it helps others on their journey. So 
Therefore, we're going to look at this anatomy. We're going to see two forces at work here in David's story in this anatomy. First off, we see that sin snowballs. In David's story, we see this kind of progression of sin. And the more that the sin goes unchecked in his life, the more destructive it becomes. So we see sin snowballs. That's the first kind of force we see at work. The second thing is this. God always wants to give us an off-ramp from sin. He always gives us an off-ramp from sin. What do I mean by that? Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So he never gives us a sin that we can't get out of. Then it says this, But with temptation he will always provide a way of escape that you may, may be able to endure it. And so, it's like when you're driving on the highway on a road trip, Um, I don't know if you guys are like me, but you kind of look down and your gas tank's getting empty and you're like, man, I'm making great time, aren't I? And I know I should pull over now at this exit to get gas, but I'm going to, I'm going to go one more exit. And then you get to the next exit and you're kind of getting close to it and you see, oh, it's just a little bit in the red. It's not down past the red spot. And so you're like, I'm going to go a little bit farther. I'm going to see how, how far I can go. And the ridiculous thing is the cost-benefit analysis is, is terrible, right? The, the, cost of, the cost is basically you being stuck on the side of the road and walking to go get gas. And the benefit is like three extra miles. But we do this when we drive, and we do this with our sin. We think, ah, if I don't deal with it now, it'll be okay. I'll, just, I'll deal with it next week. I'll deal with this sin next week. But God always gives us an off-ramp. So do we take it is the question I want us to think about. So these two forces are at work. This kind of snowballing sin and God giving David these numerous off-ramps. And the reason that this story is so excruciatingly painful is because we get front row seats to this anatomy of sin. And so I want to look at this story real quick and just the different stages that unfold. So David sees Bathsheba on the roof. And right there, he goes up. He's lounging around his, you know, his temple, his, his house. He goes up, sees her bathing on the roof. And he has an opportunity. There's his off-ramp. Oh, oh my gosh, there's a woman bathing on the roof. I need to go downstairs and lounge a little more. I need to get out of here. Guys, we're visual. And so we can relate to this. You have that immediate, you see a beautiful woman. Okay, God, she's beautiful, but I'm going to look away. We have this off-ramp. We always have an off-ramp with sin. But David doesn't take the off-ramp. And so sin snowballs. Then he sends a servant to inquire, who is this woman? And he finds out this. She's married. There's an exit ramp. All right, I can't take her as a wife, but it's a concubine, she's married. I'm not going to do it. But he doesn't take it. And the sin snowballs more. And then after the moment of passion has gone by, David hears these famous words of Bathsheba. Short and sweet, I am pregnant. And at that point, he's given an off-ramp. He can say, you know, I blew it. My mistake has come back to haunt me. I need to make this right. But he doesn't. 
He doesn't take the exit, and the sin continues to snowball. He tries to cover it up. And he says, well, let me try to get her husband Uriah back and make him think that it's his child. Tries to cover it up, and then Uriah does something very unexpected. He honors his king. He says, Uriah, one of his 30 top men says, I will not leave the battlefield. I will stay here and fight for the king. I won't return and go back to my wife. And again, David is given an off-ramp. Given this opportunity to say, Uriah, you're a better man than I. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against your wife and your family and against Israel. And so, I'm sorry, and I'm going to take the consequences. But he doesn't take the exit ramp. And so, sin snowballs. And we see that what David does to try to cover it all up is he sends Uriah to the front lines of battle. And then he tells all the other men around him to withdraw. And Uriah is killed. And he murders Uriah. And then he takes Bathsheba to be his wife. Time and time again, we see these two forces. That God gives them an out, but he doesn't take it. And the sin continues to snowball. And the results are devastating. For him, for Uriah, for Bathsheba, and ultimately for the nation of Israel. So if we think this with our sin, it's not going to hurt anybody. Or I don't want to take the off-ramp now. I'm just going to look at a little bit of stuff on my computer. I'm just going to flirt a little bit with this person. I'm just going to confide in this person. They're not my spouse, but they're, you know, they're really understanding. I'm just going to imagine what it would be like to be married to somebody else. Just imagine it. I'm not going to act on it. Or I'm just going to hide this little thing away from my spouse. Or for single people, it's this. I'm just going to date this non-Christian. I'm not going to marry them. I'm just going to date them. I'm going to go on a few dates with them. And I'll tell you, single people in the room, I've seen so many people's lives become so difficult because they made that decision. Because we tend to think, look at this little sin. It's no big deal. It's not going to hurt anybody. But that's not the way that sin works because sin has a snowballing effect. So to kind of illustrate this point, um, a few years back, I was on a retreat with some men. We were on a guy's retreat, and we were actually going to do some Katrina relief. And there was this guy there who had recently retired as an NFL player. He played for the Green Bay Packers and for the Atlanta Falcons. And he was a special teams guy. And so he was a punt returner, a kick returner, as well as the guy that ran down and tackled the punt returner and kick returner. And if you know anything about football, you know that that's like two of the most dangerous positions in the whole game. Am I right, guys and girls that like football? Yeah? It's dangerous. Really dangerous. So he was a little bit of a wild man, but a really cool guy. And he told us this story. He said this. Guys, when I was playing for Green Bay, I actually bought a baby lion. We were like, what? And he was like, yeah, I bought a baby lion. And it lived in my apartment in Green Bay, which is just hilarious. Just the thought of a lion in Green Bay, Wisconsin. But... He bought this lion, and he said when it was really little, it was just incredibly cute, and it would run around his house, and it was like a giant house cat with big paws, and it would just stomp around. And he said when it would get older, he would come back from practice, and he would walk into the room, and his lion was nowhere to be seen. 
And all of a sudden, he'd hear these little footsteps behind him. And all of a sudden, he'd see these two big paws grab him right here. And then he would wrestle them down. He said, I used to love to wrestle with this thing because I was always stronger than it. But it thought it was strong. But I was always stronger because this was a big football player guy. And then he said, the day came when I was wrestling with it that I realized this thing is stronger than me. This lion has gotten stronger. I can't handle it anymore. And just then the lion bit him right in the bicep and ripped a piece of his bicep off. And he said, I've got, I love this thing, but I've got to get rid of it. I've got to get rid of my lion. And if you've ever struggled with the snowball of sin, you know how this story relates. That's how sin works, especially sexual sin. It starts as something that seems small and harmless, a little pet sin, and we don't take the opportunities that God gives us to escape. But the longer that we let it live with us, the stronger that it gets in our lives. And the more we go down that path of sin, the more painful it's going to be for us and for our family to expose it. So we do what humans do. We hide. We hide it. And before we know it, we are not controlling the sin, but the sin is controlling us. So if you're stuck in some snowballing sin, hear me now. Take the exit ramp. Take it now. Confess. Talk to somebody. You're not alone. Talk to a mentor. Talk to a friend. Talk to your spouse. Talk to one of the pastors. We don't expect you to be perfect people. We expect you to be broken people. So take the exit ramp. Because today, if you are hearing this sermon, God is giving you an escape plan right now to talk to somebody. So we've talked about this anatomy, okay? So we've got the snowballing effect, and we have God giving us an exit ramp. But what's the root cause? What's the sin behind the sin? Why did David, who knew better, certainly knew better, he knew the law of God, Why did he sin? Why did he do this? Why do we go against all our strongest convictions and hurt the people we love the most? What's the root cause? Well, I want to look at a famous passage on sin in James 1, 14 through 15, because I think it really tells us what's behind this story of David. It says this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings death. And we see that in this story. Starts with desire. David gives in to his desire. It turns into sin. And sin turns into death. That's how it works. So what James is saying is this. The root of sin is desire. It's the heart. It's not, I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, or I had a temporary moment of weakness. No, it's not that. It's deeper than that. It's the heart. It's you. It's your heart. It's your desires. When the movie director, Woody Allen, was asked in an interview in Time Magazine why he left his wife of so many years for a much younger woman, he said simply this, the heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. I think he's on to something there. Because the root of sin 
is our desires. It's our heart. But here's the thing about desire that's so important to remember. That our desire, our deepest longings, the things we crave after most, is the root cause of both the worst things that we'll ever do while we walk this earth, and it's the root cause of the greatest things that we're going to ever do when we walk this earth. Because desire itself is not a bad thing. God created us to be desires, actually, so that we can desire him. So God made us desires so we can desire him. Three or four years ago, I was sharing with a mentor of mine that I was struggling with um, just some sin stuff. It was a handful of different things, and I was just touching base with him and kind of asking him for some practical advice about how do I manage this sin that I'm dealing with? And he said to me, well, Dan, he's got this southern draw. He's like, how is your relationship with Jesus? And he was like, are you receiving the unconditional love of Jesus? And I kind of was a little bit annoyed with him. Because I'm like, hey, I want some help with this sin. I want to talk about, you know, this issue. And he said, said this, I'll never forget. He said, Dan, you will eat. You, what is he talking about, you will eat? He said, Dan, you will eat. If you are not eating and feasting on the unconditional love of God, you will eat something else. Because we are desires. That's what we do. And so if we're not feasting on the Lord, then we're feasting on something else. So if you're struggling with the sin, most likely... You've diverted that desire for the Lord, that feasting on the Lord that we're made to do, and turned it to something else. And so my main point that I want to drive home to you is this. That to quench the thirst for sin, drink deeply at the well of God's desire. I'm going to say that again because I really want you to catch it. That to quench the thirst for sin, don't just think, okay, I've got to manage it. I've got to get into a box. No. Drink deeply of God's desire for you. Drink deeply. Because at the root of our being, we are desires. And we do what we desire every time. We do what we desire to our own flourishing or our own destruction. And so we've looked at this anatomy of sin, how sin works. And we've looked at the root cause of sin, which is desire. But how do we reorient that desire? That's what I want to focus in on in the last few minutes of the sermon. What about the cure? How do we cure this disease? Well, the cure for sin is Christ's desire for you. I'm going to say that again. The cure is Christ. If you want to quench your thirst for sin, drink deeply of him. See, the thing is with David... We know he was a man after God's own heart. But something happened between chapter 10 and chapter 11 that his desire was diverted elsewhere. And we get this little detail. I don't know if you caught it. At the end of verse 27, it says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. And God's displeasure in David, hear me, showed his desire for his soul. 
Here we see that when David didn't desire God, God still desired him. So when we feel God's heavy hand of conviction on us, if you felt it today, you felt it this week, it doesn't mean that God has rejected you. It actually means that God desires you. He wants your heart. He wants that filth in your life out. It shows us his love for us, that conviction. It shows us that when we turn our face from him, he will always be turning and facing us. That when we seek love and affirmation in shameful places, he will seek us and love us back to him. That is the God that we serve. So if you are caught in the snowball of sin, hear this. When your desires have turned from God, God's desires for you are not deterred. He's running after you. Because only when we know God's desire for us will we ever desire Him or will we desire His ways. So, hear me. To quench your thirst for sin, drink deeply at the well of God's desire for you. And my application points are going to be two. And I'm not going to give you long-standing application points. Um, sometimes on you know, Thursday, you're like, what did he say in that sermon? I don't remember. So application points is just going to be for today. And it's this. In a few minutes when we kneel, when we confess our sins before God, I want you to lay before him whatever that is. Whatever that place in your life where you've diverted your desire from him, tell him about it. Ask him for a new heart. Drink deep. Because to stop the thirst for sin, we have to drink deeply of Christ. Secondly, is this. When you come forward and you kneel at this rail and you take the bread and you hear those words, this is the body of Christ broken for you. I want you to eat it. I want you to take it in. And then when you take that cup and you hear those words, this is the blood of Christ poured out in love for you. Drink deeply. And know that God wants you. That he loves you. That he desires for you, even in your sin. Because to quench the thirst for sin, we must drink deeply of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just confess to you our hearts don't seek you. Lord, and we thank you that you still seek us. And so, Lord, I pray for those of us who need it, lay your heavy hand of conviction on us. Lord, and turn our hearts back to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.